0: Welcome, this is part two of an interview with Mark Charles, a Native American and an independent candidate to the presidential election of 2020. I discovered the the boarding school while uh, in uh, Phoenix. A Native American Museum. People were mistreated and, and dehumanized. What I also understood is that some Native American used that experience to politicize themselves in order to fight back this operation. Is that something you yeah. agree with?
1: My grandfather was one was a person like that. I mean, he, he was a boarding school survivor and he learned English well. He attended college he didn't graduate due to the Great Depression. And he actually went to, he testified in front of Congress advocating for more funding for Indian education. Right. So, yeah, there's a, there's a history of people, Native peoples, African people, women, who have been trying to work within the system to get the system to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. treat these communities right. better. And on one hand, you could say that's what I'm doing with my campaign for president, but I'm I'm taking it to a level that our nation has never dealt with it before. Absolutely, I am advocating that we deal with the foundations because that's where the dehumanization and the white supremacy, the racism, and the sexism is embedded. And I want to
0: come back to that, and And we have to deal with it there. Talk to me a bit more about the doctrine of discovery, but before we do that, let me come back to. something that you mentioned and that you're also mentioning in your, in your video. The fact that, you know, your experience is somewhat similar to, or at least you want to unify uh, the Black American with the Native uh, Americans. Yet, my understanding is that the relationship between the Native Americans and the Blacks have not always been very uh, easy or peaceful some uh native american even enslaved blacks Do you you know what's your what's your take on that
1: i will agree that there there is some bad history in the past between both african americans and native americans and again any other group of people you you're, you're going to see this and i would agree that that does exist there my experience growing up was there was very little, if any, interaction between black and white because the three predominant demographics in the Southwest are white, Latino or Latina, Latinx, and Natives. There's very few, if any, African Americans in the Southwest. There are some, um, but but it's a much smaller group. And so a lot of my experience growing up was there was just a lot of ignorance about even the history. And, and this is one of the challenges that we face. So because of the way race was constructed in America, again, where the, the narrative of, of our, our country was they, these lands were discovered, so there were no people here. And then African people were captured and brought over here and enslaved. And the way the black race was constructed was in part through what's called the one-drop rule. So the one-drop rule states that if you have a single drop of African blood, you're black. Now, the reason we have this rule is because blacks were the enslaved demographic and they were used to build the country, and so this nation wanted as many of them as possible. So the one-drop rule allowed for a white slave owner to rape his female enslaved women and produce more people that they could enslave. Meanwhile, the native community, we had what's known as the blood quantum rule that was applied to us. The blood quantum rule stated that if there was intermarriage or if you know you could be full and then half and then a quarter, then an eighth and a sixteenth and soon your nativeness could be bred out of you. Why do we have this rule for natives? Well, because the myth of the nation was we discovered these lands, there were no people here. And the U.S. government had treaty obligations to Native people, so they wanted as few of us as possible. And so the American Indian race was constructed so it could be bred out of existence and eventually assimilated into the the broader nation. And so because of these things and because most of the places where because of the way enslavement worked, the way the black population increased was where there were a lot of white people. And because natives were being ethnically cleansed and removed from these lands, and at best put on reservations, if not just genocidally killed, wherever white people came, natives decreased. And so the Southwest was one place where there was some population of native peoples and there was some intermixing between the races. And so, but because of this, there, there was very little interaction. Not none, but very little interaction between the white or the black and the native races.
0: Today, what are your own personal interactions with the African-American communities and how does it work out?
1: I frequently get asked questions by people about how can they reach out to native peoples, how can they begin to learn this history and, and even build relationships within native communities. And Oftentimes, they're not looking really to build relationships. They're looking for ways to kind of give charity or to learn some things and study a few new things. And I work very hard to direct people in a different path. And so I work very hard to tell people this is all about building relationship. And so I've tried to take the very same approach to my understanding about the African-American community, which because I grew up in an area where, There were so few African-Americans, I've learned that I have to be very intentional to build relationships within that community. And so for most of my adult life where we've moved around the country, even the churches we've attended or sometimes the neighborhoods we lived in, we have been very intentional uh, to put ourselves in a space where we are interacting with the African-American community and uh, seeing some of the challenges and some of the struggles. And then in the context of that, beginning to be building relationships within that community. You know, the challenge is that as a nation, we see all these things in silos. And so the nation, because of the way the population has worked out, it tends to deal primarily with white versus black and to focus on the issue of the injustice of slavery. Um, but the challenge is it's not that siloed. We have women who are dealing with issues of sexism and, and assault. We have uh, Native Americans who are dealing with issues of genocide and ethnic cleansing and cultural genocide and boarding schools and removal. We have African Americans who are dealing with histories of enslavement and Jim Crow and segregation and all of the communities of color dealing with issues of mass incarceration. And these are very much not siloed things. And yet often were put into silos. And so by Taking this approach of investing deeply in relationships within these diverse communities, this is what helped lead me even into this understanding of one of the primary visions of my platform, which is that our nation needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation that steps out of the silos and actually begins to look at the root of what's causing these challenges in all of our communities
0: and how is it being welcomed by the community the
1: black community well again so a lot of this is is helping people understand the value of having this dialogue rooted in a much deeper history not just in the history of one demographic or one group of people or even one narrative and there there's a there's a native leader from Canada. His name is George Erasmus. And when he was writing in regards to the truth and reconciliation commission that happened in Canada uh, out of their residential schools, he used this quote where he said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real history or no real community. If you want to build a community, it says you have to start by creating common memory. Now, this is a, a very good idea. Not just for white people, but for all Americans, to understand that there are so many stories of the people who live here, people who call themselves citizens. Whether it's the, the stories of enslavement, the stories of, of um, you know, of the Holocaust, the stories of internment camps, the stories of boarding schools and removal and massacres. There's all these different stories, and we don't, by and large, as a nation, have a common memory. People will know the, the the stories within their silos, but they won't know the stories of the broader nation. The the more the the, the narrative of, of the of the broader community. And so, what I'm really trying to do is to say, hey, there's a value in learning all of these stories and giving giving voice to all of these different demographics, so that we as a nation can actually have a healthier community.
0: And I get that,
1: but and what I'm that vision is is heard well. It, it's received well. The people who hear it think it's beautiful and really like it.
0: Yeah, and and what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what concrete action did you see from other communities, including the black communities, in joining new This understanding and this command memory. You know, my my experience looking at my experience of a you know white guy in this country, is that, as you said, this is very siloed. And the blacks say, look, our experience is so different from anything else that we need to fight for ourselves. Nobody else but us can carry on this fight. You come with a very uh, you know, different view, saying let's bring together our common experience in order to create a, a memory that will enable our fight to be even stronger. But did you see that actually being picked yeah. up by other communities?
1: What I find among the demographics is when, when we are able to properly educate everybody with some of the true history of all the communities. And when you read the Constitution, and there's really three demo, four demographics that the Constitution defines very clearly. You know, it, it starts with the words in the preamble, we the people. That sounds inclusive. It sounds like, oh, everybody is a part of this. But Article 1, Section 2, which is the section of the Constitution, just a few lines below the preamble that defines who actually is included in we the people. And first of all, it never mentions women. And this is important because if you read the entire Constitution, preamble through the 27th Amendment, you will find that there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns. 51 he, him, and his who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the document. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire Constitution. So we have to know Article I, Section 2 never mentions women. Second, it specifically excludes natives. And third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. So in 1787, that leaves white men, and it was white landowning men who could vote. So there's an expectation that everybody's included. And one of the the most clear ways to identify this is this crisis that's going on right now in Indian country known as missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, where there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of indigenous women who've been reported missing or reported murdered by their families to law enforcement, local, state, and even federal. And not only are their cases not being closed, but often they're not even being opened their families are literally left to go and hunt for them themselves. When I was at the Frank Lemaire Native American Presidential Forum, they were asking the candidates about this. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris. And as they learned about this crisis, they were all responding and saying, we need a new law or a new policy to protect this vulnerable demographic. However, as a Native man who's read our Constitution and knows our history, my response was and is, when your Declaration calls declaration of Independence calls Native savages and your Constitution never mentions women, you shouldn't be surprised when your Indigenous women go missing and get murdered and society and the government doesn't care. A new law isn't going to fix this problem because the law is ultimately based on our foundations, and it's our foundations that state this group is not included. If we want to fix this problem, we have to fix our foundations.
0: Yeah, and 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 how do you explain it? I mean, be, beside you know what you just said about the constitution, you, you know why is this demographic missing? And my question is, is it because there are not reported properly at the first place. I mean, are they tracked, uh, Native American women? Are they do their
1: papers? I mean, if they are listing, uh, that's know? the problem. There, there's no central listing. There's nothing. They even though they get reported, nothing happens or very little happens on the on the the system, the the institutional side of the law enforcement. And suddenly, I mean, that
0: has been going on for years, right? I mean, yes. Everybody knows about that.
1: And this is, this is the problem, and this is why it's a crisis, and this is also why. And so one of the ways you, you, I, I look at it, um, there's an author named Willie Jennings who's talked about this idea of proximity to whiteness. When you understand the doctrine of discovery, you read our foundations, and you realize that technically the foundations were written for white landowning, Technically, Christian men. That is like the sweet spot of this country. If you're a white landowning Christian male, the United States of America is your oyster. You have every opportunity, every possibility, many, many, many chances to come and find your fortunes. Now, depending on what other demographics you are, so myself, I'm a male with dark skin because I'm Navajo and I am a Christian, but I don't own any land. So I fit two of the four categories, right? I'm, I'm a male. I'm a native male. Who's a Christian. So I, 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 I get two and I miss two. Um, So there's a few ways that I can have this proximity to whiteness to be included within the system. Lower down at the bottom, you have women of color. African-American women, other women of color. They're not white. They're not male. They may be Christian. And if they work very, very, very hard, they might be able to become a landowner. So they have one, maybe one and a half of the four categories. At the very bottom, the very bottom, the group that has almost no proximity and even very little chance of proximity Are indigenous women. A, if they're indigenous and they're living on their reservation, there's a good chance they follow their traditional religion, so they're not Christian. Because they're on a reservation, which is federal lands held in trust for the tribes, they can't own land. They're not white and they're not male. They fit none of the categories and have very little chance of gaining access to any of those categories. So they are at the very, very, very bottom. And so one of the things that I'm trying so hard to do is until we include the people at the very bottom, we're not going to be able to include everybody. So if I were just fighting for the rights of Navajo men, then I would still be leaving women of color who have no opportunity to have those access points in. This is why I go back frequently to, to missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Because again, this is the demographic that has almost zero proximity to whiteness. And therefore, it's it, we have to take note that this is the group of people that even when they get reported as missing or murdered, society doesn't respond.
0: I want to ask you about the current pandemic. For the past few decades, Native American nations have been increasingly taken on a greater responsibility for providing a wide range of governmental service. Yet, as Native American nations cannot uh, raise tax, as you know, the rest of the government, they were dependent on casinos or enterprises that, because of the pandemic, have been closed. And that makes the situation harder uh, for the Native American people now to deal with. You know, what's, what's your take on, on this situation?
1: I would argue that the, the root of the problem comes down to sovereignty or control over their own lands and land titles. This is, this is at the root of what is causing so much of the challenge for our Native nations. If you follow the so news, and,
0: and, and we are dealing with, uh, or oh, you are talking about the challenge when it comes to the coronavirus. Well, we I'm just talking about along. in in general the challenge. Yes, and
1: this fits in very closely to the coronavirus, and I can will help you understand why. So, um, how can I do this without going on for for 20 minutes? Um, <laughs> so a, a few a few in March, actually, I me mean, go back in. The Obama administration established reservation lands for the Mashpee Wampanoag in Massachusetts. Joe Biden, this was part of the Biden-Obama administration in his second term. He established reservation lands for the Mashpee Wampanoag. In March of this year, March of 2020, the Trump administration disestablished those reservations. So essentially, if you think of it, if you think of the U.S. government as the landlord and the Native Nations as the tenants and the reservation as the apartment, what happened is President Obama gave an apartment to the Native Nation. And then during a global pandemic, President Trump kicked them out of the apartment. So, a, it was unjust. It was it was heartless. But b, the timing of it was horrible. This was like kicking someone out of their apartment during a hurricane. It just it, it's if there was it, not only is it heartless to invict, evict people, but to evict them in the midst of a global pandemic is like it's just it's completely heartless. And so there was a lot of outcry amongst the general population, people who knew about it, of this was a cruel act by the Trump administration. And even President, Vice President Biden responded to this, and he um, wrote a letter responding to the, the injustice of that. And I want to just read one of the quotes from his letter. He wrote... He pointed out how it was cruel of the Trump administration to disestablish this reservation during a pandemic. He reminded the country that the Obama administration, with him, helped establish this reservation. And then he went on and and he said, one of the most important roles the federal government plays in rebuilding the nation-to-nation relationship is taking land into trust on behalf of tribes. It is critical for tribal sovereignty and self-determination. Now, that statement is dripping with white supremacy and dehumanization. Let's just, for, for, for fun, let's insert France instead of native tribes, okay? One of the most important roles the federal government plays in rebuilding the nation-to-nation relationship is taking land into trust on behalf of France. It is critical for French sovereignty and self-determination. If President Trump or President Obama or anyone said that to another foreign leader, those would be words of war.
0: Yeah, that would be an outcry. Absolutely. You would, you would,
1: this, is, a, this, this is not a nation-to-nation relationship, and this has nothing to do with sovereignty and self-determination. Right. And so the the fascinating thing about this is in Joe Biden's mind... Trump is bad because he kicked the the Mashpee Wampanoag out. He and President Obama were good because they let them in. But neither one of them are understanding the injustice of the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island being considered mere tenants in the lands that were stolen and ethnically cleansed by the government of their people. And so this is... And this is where the doctrine of discovery lies. And so, because there is no sense of native rights to land, we are merely tenants, we are merely occupants. And that is rooted in the doctrine of discovery. Mm -hmm. A Supreme Court case back in 1823 by John Marshall is the first case referencing the doctrine of discovery. It's referenced as recently as 2005. I did a TEDx talk on this called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History, laying out the court case in 2005, the United Indian Nation versus the City of Sherrill New York. I, under, I I lay out how this is one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court op- opinions written in my lifetime. That, again, de- denies the United Indian Nation rights to their lands based on the Doctrine of Discovery, and that opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Again, so so in the midst of this pandemic, the Navajo Nation now has the highest rate of infection of any, if it were a state, we would have the highest rate of, we were higher than New York and New Jersey on the Navajo Nation. Healthcare is rural there. There's not enough hospitals. We have almost 200,000 people on the Navajo Nation because of history and cultural differences and understandings. Social distancing is a challenge to get our people to social distance. Because of the rising numbers on the Navajo Nation, the county of McKinley, McKinley County in New Mexico, became the highest rate of infection in New Mexico, which is where the city of Gallup lives, which is where I grew up. The end of last month, end of April, the outgoing mayor of Gallup was seeing this rising infection rate, he was seeing what was happening to the two hospitals they have in Gallup. And he was looking at what was taking place on their closest neighbor, which is the Navajo nation. Now the Navajo nation is a food desert. 200,000 people, about 26,000 square miles, 13 full service grocery stores. The border towns are absolutely crucial because there's not enough inventory on the Navajo nation to feed our people. So you have to go to the border towns on the weekends to buy groceries. Mm -hmm. Many of our people are on fixed incomes and they get a check from the government at the end of the month. And so the end of the month, you're stretching your budget and your food. And then the first of the month when you get your check or your money, you have to go to the border town to buy groceries. The city of Gallup, New Mexico cannot exist economically without the influx of money from the Navajo Nation. It cannot exist without without this business. On the last, second to last day of the month, the outgoing mayor in April sent a letter to the governor of New Mexico asking her to invoke the Riot Control Act so they could shut the roads into Gallup. So they shut yeah. the roads into Gallup, put police officers and national guards there, literally at, to keep natives from coming into town and buying groceries at gunpoint. Whoa!
0: So what happened?
1: They shut it down for almost but two weeks. How, how, how did the
0: people eat? Where did they find their food?
1: Well, they, they would have to either stand in a long line at the, one of the few grocery stores on the reservation or travel to another border town two, mile, two, two hours in the other direction. Again, I, I fully admit this was a crisis 250 years in the making. There was no good solution to this problem. But of all the bad solutions they could have possibly found, invoking the Riot Control Act on people who are not riot, who are not rioting, and who are our foundations already dehumanized, and to lock them out of this town where they literally were just trying to buy groceries was probably the worst of the bad solutions they had in front of them. And so that's happening there. Meanwhile, you have in South Dakota, there are several roads that pass right through many of the reservations in South Dakota. And the tribes in South Dakota fearing, knowing how vulnerable their population is because of access to hospitals and access to to healthy food and just the challenges they face, knowing how vulnerable their populations are to COVID-19 decided to set up checkpoints, not to keep people out, but to monitor who's passing through so they could protect their population. Mm. And the, the white governor of South Dakota began challenging them and demanding that they not take these actions to protect their people. And recently, as two days ago, reached out to the Trump administration asking for federal help to stop the tribes from doing this. And so in New Mexico, you have the, the Navajo, the Native Nations, the Navajo Nation being told by the governor they can't go into a border town. Yeah. And in South Dakota, you have the, the, the governor telling Native Nations they cannot protect their people on the land that's been established as their reservation. This is the problem. And Joe Biden thinks this relationship is just great as well as Donald Mark, Trump does.
0: Mark, we've been we've been talking for an hour and I have three more questions which I really want to ask you. One question is uh, from one of our listeners who is asking what do you think of President Trump's action uh, regarding the world since the beginning of his governments.
1: So, one of the challenges because our nation doesn't have a common memory, because we have this mythological history, is there is this narrative coming out of our country that President Trump is ruining our nation. He's destroying our nation. We used to be this great nation, and now we're not. I absolutely agree President Trump is a problem, but he's not the root of the problem. We still... To to this day, we have a Declaration of Independence that calls native savages. To this day, one of our greatest presidents as a country that we hold up as our greatest president, Abraham Lincoln, was one of the most white supremacist and ethnic cleansing presidents in our nation's history. People act, and I I actually wrote that article, I, I wrote two articles um, they're on my blog on my uh, campaign website, which is markcharles2020.com. One of the articles is titled, um, "President uh, Trump and Biden are both peddling nostalgia and that's a problem. So they're both talking about how America used to be great and now it's not. So Donald Trump is running to make America great again, implying it wasn't beforehand. Vice President Biden is saying, well, let's bring America back to its former greatness, apparently before President Trump. The only people who can have a nostalgic memory about this country are white people. They're the only people. There, there's, a, there's an ad by, by President, Vice President Biden just a few weeks ago that it was a brilliant ad. It was about the COVID-19 pandemic. And it said, um, it it basically used quotes of Donald Trump, of his denial of this pandemic and what was happening with it. And it, um, it ended with saying, it had a quote where it said, President Trump didn't build a great economy, he destroyed one. Okay. Now, again, that sounds... Most Americans are going to read that and say, yes, President Trump is doing all these things to destroy our economy. And look, well, this is implying that the economy our nation had three months ago was great. So three months ago, yes, corporate profits were an all-time high, unemployment was at an all-time low. But we had millennials drowning in debt from education. We have most people working, a lot of our, our millennials working two, three jobs in the gig economy just to make ends meet. Healthcare is abysmal. Yeah, for white landowning men, three months ago, the economy was great. They were making money hand over foot. For everyone else, we were barely scraping by, living paycheck to paycheck. See, this is the problem. The, the, the whole notion that we used to be great, President Trump is ruining this great country, completely ignores... The incredible racism, sexism, and white supremacy of our nation. I wrote another article a few months ago. This was during the the height of the uh, of the in, impeachment proceedings, and that article was titled, um, "If you think simply impeaching Donald Trump is the solution, then you don't understand the problem." Absolutely, Donald Trump is a problem. He's has appears very narcissistic. He has this very short-sighted policies. He's, yeah, he's definitely not a very constructive president. But so were most of our even great presidents. Abraham Lincoln, ethnically cleansed, and literally was a white supremacist, blatant white supremacist. Ronald Reagan started a war on drugs, which was technically a war on race. Bill Clinton perfected the art of mass incarceration and filled our prisons with people of color. So to think Trump is the only problem is has a very it ignores most of the history of our country.
0: Do you think that this nation whose original sin include the enslavement of black people? and the extermination of native american do you think that this nation will ever be able to live together
1: the vision of my country of my of my campaign is i am calling the question and i'm asking our country do we want to be a nation where we the people truly means all the people i don't know the answer to that question i don't know what my nation's going to decide if they decide no, then that's fine. That's great. We're, we're doing a good job of that because we're obviously not a nation where we the people includes everybody. If we do want to be a nation where we the people means all the people, then we have to deal with our foundations. We have to do some foundational level work. The United States of America is not racist and sexist and white supremacist in spite of our foundations. We're racist, sexist and white supremacist because of our foundations. And we have to address that. And so I cannot make my nation not be racist, sexist, and white supremacist. I can present a vision and I can ask the question, do we want to be this or not? If we do want to be that, then we have to look at some very serious changes we need to make. And so, yeah, that's really what my campaign is all about. And I, to be honest, I know there's a lot of people who like my vision, but there are also a lot of people who are pretty convinced that things are just fine the way they are. Hmm.
0: One question I always ask is, what is
1: America to you? America is a colonial nation. Founded on stolen lands, broken treaties, enslavement, racism, sexism, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. It desperately wants to be something else, but it doesn't know if it's willing to put in the work to become that. And that's what I'm trying to ask. And that's what I'm working towards as a candidate for president. That's the vision I'm holding out. That's the very, very basic question I'm trying to get my country to answer. And I'm being as honest as I can and saying, if we want that, we have some extremely difficult work that we need to do.
0: Okay.
1: Finally, Mark, do you have any books
0: or movie that you would recommend?
1: One of the first books about the doctrine of discovery that I was ever exposed to was written by a native author. His name is Stephen Newcomb. He's Shawnee and Lenape. And uh, he wrote a book called Pagans in the Promised Land. And it's it's a very in-depth book about the doctrine of discovery. And it was one of, again, one of the first books I, I was exposed to regarding this doctrine, and I highly respect Steve for the work that he's done and the way he has tried to press the conversation forward on the doctrine and even trying to get the nations and even the church to acknowledge it. Um, while he and I may not agree on everything about about the doctrine, I, I highly respect his work, and I think his voice is one that needs to be heard. Um, I also just recently published a book on the Doctrine of Discovery, titled Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. My co-author, Sung Chan Ra, we published this book last um, November, November 2019, it came out. And it really is the... The result of years of research looking and trying to understand not only what has been said about the doctrine, but trying to understand how it has become so embedded into the church and how it has affected not only the foundations of the country, but even our history and what we've done as a nation. And so it really is filled with a lot of unsettling truths. And it's a a book I'm very proud of. It's one I, I hope a lot of people in our nation will read. Whether or not they're Christian, I often tell people that uh, even if you're not Christian, you have to understand the history of the church. If you don't understand the history of the church, you will never fully understand the history of the nation because the two have become so intertwined over our over the past 250 years. As far as movies, um, there's two movies. They're both documentaries that I, I talk about. I reference a lot, and I really like people to watch them. One is called Homeland's. Four Portraits of Native Action, and it looks at um, four different tribes, Alaska, Maine, Montana, and New Mexico are where they're from, and uh, really wrestling with how these tribes um, are working very actively to maintain some sense of ownership and and sovereignty or uh, space within their homelands, and I I find a lot of insight in this documentary. And I highly recommend it to people. There's another documentary that just came out uh, even in the past six months. It's called Somebody's Daughter. And it's looking very closely at the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Uh, It tells a very compelling story. It goes very in-depth into the history and into some of the systemic problems with it. And I highly recommend this documentary. It's not available even online yet, but um, there's a trailer online, but it's still screening in, in different places around the country. And I highly recommend that if people are able to see a screening of this documentary, that they take time to do it. Once again, it's called Somebody's Daughter and it was directed by Rain.
0: Okay, that's good. Anything else you wish I would have asked you?
1: One of the things I look most forward to if elected president is appointing a native American or nominating a native American as my secretary of state. One of the reasons I want to do this is because not only does the U S not have a common memory of its own history, but most of our allies don't have a common memory of our, of their own history. And the reason most of the Western Europe is our ally is because we are all very colonial nations. France at one point was the largest colonial landholder in the in North America, um, and with the Louisiana Purchase, sold not only vast amounts of land but huge amounts of people within those lands to the U.S. And I would really look forward, both as president and. With my Secretary of State as being the the head ambassador for this nation to the world, not to break these relationships, but to really challenge them and to 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 press the question, what does it mean for us collectively to deconstruct our colonialism and become better global citizens of this interconnected world we now live in. And I, you know, a lot of what I see going on in Europe around immigration, around closing of borders, all these things, I see the root of that coming, stemming from this unresolved, unacknowledged colonial history that these countries don't know what to do with. And so I, I'm i looking forward to, if I get elected president, to what can, what not only what can we do here in the U.S. to deal with our colonial past, but how can that, dialogue also extend out to other nations and even to heads of states of other nations to really challenge and initiate the dialogue about the colonial history that came out of almost all of Western Europe. Um, And yeah, that's something I very much look forward to, to trying to engage in and to seeing where that goes and what happens with that.
0: If you are not elected president, Would you be ready to work with the elected government in order to improve the relationship with the government and the Native Americans?
1: One of the biggest challenges is because the things I'm calling for are so foundational that most, let me rephrase it another way, I'm running as an independent I'm running as independent because I am convinced after extensive research and and observation that neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party have any interest in making these changes at the foundational levels that I'm proposing. They are too much dependent upon these colonial, racist, sexist, and white supremacist systems that they are not willing to address foundational level change. And so I'm still trying to work within the system, not the system of the two parties, but of our system of governance and our and our presidential system to introduce this dialogue and get the nation to address these things. But I am quite certain that neither... Vice President Biden, nor Donald Trump have any interest in engaging the conversations I'm trying to engage at the levels I'm trying to engage them at.
0: Thank you so much, Mark Charles, for this uh, interview and good luck for your campaign.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today and I look forward to having some more dialogue in the future.